Welcome to the Birds Up Podcast, brought to you by the UTSA Alumni Association. We are your source on what's going on at the university, the Alumni Association, and all things Runner Nation. Because now and forever, we are Roadrunners. 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 Welcome, Runner Nation, to another episode of the Birds Up Podcast, brought to you by the UTSA Alumni Association, a podcast by runners for runners, and I'm your host, Drew Addison, and with me, as always, is my beautiful wife, Yvonne. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Glad to be back again. And our podcast team is a-growing. It is. Yeah, we just had a really wonderful meeting with board member Melissa Adame, Mm -hmm. who is joining the team and helping us with... All of the craziness that we have going on <laughs> behind the scenes of this of this wonderful show. It's, you know, it it was crazy at first getting yeah. it started. Yeah. But we have a good little system going. Everybody has their responsibilities, and we kind of have a well-oiled machine. Yeah, it moves I, pretty smooth. Yeah. But, of course, we can't do it forever. So right. we want to make sure that we're bringing on fresh members who are um, interested in being a part of the team with bringing in their ideas and their expertise really i mean melissa had some wonderful suggestions and things of um as we were kind of navigating what we were doing what we're doing today regarding like social media and you know hosting the the site and so yeah so i think she's going to be a wonderful addition to the team so super excited well she comes from the marketing profession so yeah, well, she knows what she's doing yeah i'm super excited about that <laughs> other and... than us we're just kind of <laughs> making it up as yeah we go yeah along. <laughs> So far, so good. We're 43 episodes in, um, and we have some amazing episodes that are coming, too. We need to do something, like, fun and special for our 50th episode, I think. I think think so, too. I I feel like that's, like, a good little, like, celebration milestone. Maybe we do a a live episode. Maybe we host an event and we do the episode live. You got to talk to Russell about that. And and folks, you'll be introduced to Russell soon. So stay tuned for that. But before we jump into today's episode, Yvonne, what do we have going on at the university and the alumni association? Yeah. So a couple of cool little announcements. One is, this is a really big deal. Last week, the Hector and Gloria Lopez Foundation announced a $2.4 million grant to provide full tuition assistance to 15 Latino first-generation students at UTSA. So this will begin in the fall of 2023, and over the course of the next five years, these Lopez scholars will receive support for their tuition and fees, but they're also going to get additional resources like mentorship, tutoring, housing support, paid internships, leadership development, and a lot of other great things. So this is beyond just money for class. This is a well-rounded opportunity uh, to support students at UTSA. So that is wonderful news from the Hector and Gloria Lopez Foundation. And if you haven't caught it yet, go catch up on the latest episode of the College Tour, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. It's featuring UTSA. This is a series that goes around the nation and visits college campuses and really showcases the college experience from the eyes of the students who attend the universities. So excited to see UTSA highlighted. So go check it out. Amazon I saw a Prime. really cool Don't sneak peek with uh, Rashad Wisdom. Oh. And it was, it was really, really okay, cool. Okay, cool, cool, cool. If you haven't seen, this kind of little announcement went out on the side, but if you go to the UTSA website, utsa.edu, and you click on Maps, to navigate around campus, there's a brand new interactive map experience. So I went online and I kind of did a little orientation of it. And it's really cool because it lets you, first you can choose from the five different campuses. So if you didn't know, there are five major campuses of UTSA. Our main campus, Park West, the downtown campus, the Southwest campus and Institute of Texas and Cultures. You challenge yourself there. I think I got I, I, I think. It sounds right. <laughs> okay. Well, go Good job. That. Good we'll job. Go well, no, no, no. Not the Institute of Texas and Cultures. The downtown campus and then the San Pedro One campus. Right. Yeah. So two Can't different. Can't forget that one. Yeah. Two different downtown campuses. Right. Um, so you can choose from the different campuses. You can filter down. You can search by the types of facilities you're looking for. So if you're looking for something related to athletics or a building related to a specific academic area or dining facilities, you can even look for items of note basically on campus. So like monuments, um, statues, oh, that's awesome. particular 
areas of significance. The makerspace is considered one of those areas. So when you click on it, you can see where it's located on this really cool interactive map. It also has exterior and interior photos of the buildings, the rooms, the particular monument that's being highlighted. And it gives you like a history. There's a description, there's information. So it's pretty cool. Like if, awesome. So if you want to learn more about different aspects of UTSA, you haven't been on campus in quite some time, you want to see how it has grown and expanded, go check out that interactive map. If you have potential students in your friend or family circle that might be interested in going to UTSA, send them the link to this map. They can check out like all the cool spaces that are available on campus. So it's a really neat new way to experience UTSA. The last thing I wanted to mention is I've had the opportunity to join the development board at UTSA and I'm super excited about this. So the development board works alongside President Amy, the Division of Advancement and Alumni Engagement to broaden resources and bring awareness and advocate for UTSA. So this is a group of community members, leaders, alumni, we come together and make sure we're in the know about what's happening at UTSA, what support we can provide, what legislative items of note that we need to you know, help advocate for with our politicians. Uh, so things like that, that we can be of help to the university. So I'm super excited. I'm a new board member, but I'm also joined by my other fellow new board members, Rob Killen, who is also a past president of the Alumni Association, and Roxana Richardson and Frank Burney. So we are joining a, a lengthy list of really amazing people in San Antonio. That is awesome. So, well, congratulations yeah, on that. That yeah. is really, really cool. So I got I got introduced to this development board during my term as president of the Alumni Association because you're invited to the meetings as sort of an ex officio participant. I've just met some amazing people and was honored to be invited to to join so i'm super excited and uh more updates i'm happy to share like what's going on we got a great update on the capital campaign there was an awesome panel of graham weston president amy provost kim Espy, harvey najim mario vela who really you know they gave us like a overview about what's coming with the continued development of utsa's infrastructure in san antonio and how important it is to be able to advocate and support these projects as they come to fruition um, and then promote them outside of San Antonio within our networks like bring people outside who may not have had a relationship with UTSA before into the fold and be a part of this cool experience so it's great awesome awesome well congratulations excited to hear more about that Uh, let's go ahead and jump into today's episode today our guests spent the most time at UTSA in acquiring three different degrees in uh, class of 2006 and 2008 uh, bachelor's and master's in history and a 2015 Doctor of Education in Higher Education Administration, and current published associate professor at Iowa State University, Dr. Erin Doran. She's got a really fascinating, I'm always really interested on how folks get into professorships and and decide to make that move into making education their full-time career. She also worked for UTSA during her time and, and finishing her degrees. She worked as the student development specialist for the College of Education and Human Development at UTSA through 2016. It was also an adjunct professor for Alamo Colleges at Northeast Lakeview College, and then ultimately made her move over to Iowa State University in 2017. Her research is focused first in Hispanic-serving institution, which UTSA is, but in extending that conversation to more intentionally include community colleges and also conducts research in Mexican-American studies programs and community colleges. And during our conversation, we talked about needing to make that connection between episode 23, Texas Teacher of the Year, Ramon Benavides, whose focus is also in that and also finishing his doctoral degree. Also with Texas State Board of Education member, District 3, Marisa Perez-Diaz from episode 37. So it's great to see these alumni out there really focusing in on what is needed for our community. But stick around for after the interview as we'll come back with some more happenings at the University and Alumni Association and we'll be back in a bit. Birds up. Birds up. Beep, beep. I'm excited about today's guest for many reasons, but the one that really stuck out to me the most when I was putting together my notes was the significant amount of time that our guests spent at UTSA 
in total from 2002 to 2016 and a three-time alumni, class of 2006 <laughs> undergrad, 2008 master's in history, 2015 doctor in education, higher education and administration, and currently a published associate professor at Iowa State University, Dr. Aaron Doran. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me taking you back to 2002 and coming over to UTSA, probably at the time not thinking you were going to spend that amount of time at UTSA in particular. Let's just go ahead and start on how you came across applying for UTSA and coming into UTSA. From the outset, I should say I come from a pretty diehard Texas Longhorn family, and my older brother went to UT Austin, and I think that at the time that I was looking at colleges, it was pretty much expected that I would go to UT Austin, and no offense to Austin or anything, but I'd spent a significant portion of my time as a kid, family holidays and things like that in San Antonio. We spent almost every Thanksgiving, every Easter, lots of Fourth of Julys, and so I think that my parents were really clear that they wanted me to leave El Paso. I was born and raised in El Paso. They wanted me to have the experience of going away for college. And just for some reason, for me, Austin didn't click. And mm -hmm. San Antonio did. I think when I realized that I could go to a university in San Antonio and be in a town that felt a lot less intimidating to be alone in. When I graduated from high school, I was 17. I actually moved to San Antonio on my 18th birthday. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, weird enough. And I had family in San Antonio. I think that in many ways, for what I know now about Latino students going to college based on family, it was based on cost, wanting to be in-state public university and stuff like that. And so it wasn't necessarily a unique decision that I made, but it was kind of an act of rebellion at the time. Mm -hmm. But really, the thing for me that sealed the deal is in November 2001, this was my senior year of high school, President Romo, who has been an almost lifelong friend of my uncle Raymond. He found out that I was interested in going to UTSA. And over Thanksgiving weekend, my senior year of high school, he actually drove me to campus and walked me around campus. And it was so funny because there was nobody around. And in fact, like a lot of the buildings were closed or he was using his master key to be able to show me not even necessarily these important parts of campus. I think we maybe walked around the bottom floor of the JP. And this was before mm. Starbucks, <laughs> before <laughs> anything flashy was down there. I saw the Sombria and I connected with it. Came to orientation the summer before I started. And for me, it just was a place that I was able to hit the ground running and was very good to me. And like you mentioned, I spent 14 full years at UTSA and I always felt like the university evolved with me. That's really kind of during a massive growth phase of the university as well. A lot occurred in those 14 years. So much. And, and coming in from El Paso, 18 years old, explain what that was like. Let's talk about your first semester at UTSA as an 18-year-old Aaron coming into school there. I think one of the things that I have to say, it wasn't funny at the time, but it's kind of funny to look back, is that anybody who lived in San Antonio in the summer of 2002 knew that there was massive flood that had hit San Antonio. <laughs> I was supposed to move in on Saturday. I lived in Chisholm Hall my first year, and we couldn't move in because they found black mold inside Chisholm Hall. Oh, wow. I had family that I could stay with. I think I was on the top floor, so I was able to move in first, and then I remember that there were people who were in the first and second floors who actually didn't move in until three or four weeks into the semester. They lived in the Comfort Inn across the street from campus. Oh, yeah. That was something that I remember was pretty funny, but I had really great professors, especially that first semester. I met people who, within my first year of college, have become lifelong friends, which was really beautiful. Halfway through my freshman year, I decided I wanted to be an orientation leader and I interviewed for that in my first summer after my freshman year that I stayed in San Antonio, had just the absolute best time being an wow. orientation leader, which was so much fun. My sophomore year, I became a supplemental instruction leader. That was a lot of fun. And like you said, 
there was this tremendous growth that was going on. And I think that it was a wave of people who especially were out of towners for whom UTSA was their first choice. They weren't Mm -hmm. just the students who were in the coordinated admissions program with UT Austin who were just biding their time until they could transfer. There were a lot of people who had actually chosen to come to UTSA. People from the Valley, people from Houston, people from El Paso. And that was really fun to be a part of. And just to see UTSA was really coming out of the traditional commuter school identity that it had. Mm. And this was before football. When I started in 2002, I bought the shirt at the bookstore. Before tell me you here. still have that shirt. Oh, everyone, I still, everyone talks about it. I still have my still undefeated shirt. And I actually had a random woman on Twitter ask me if I would sell it to her. (laughs) (laughs) That shirt would go for top dollar, I can tell you right now. I do not have the heart to do it. (laughs) No, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. I would would probably put that thing in a frame at this point. I have so much sentimental value. I mean, I have not been able to fit in that shirt in probably seven years, and I don't (laughs) care. The undergraduate years, I have such fond memories of the time that UTSA basketball made it to the NCAA tournament for the first time in like a while at that point. I think it was 2004. I always used to think a really underrated thing to go do in the springtime was to go watch UTSA baseball. We had a lot of fun and it was a really exciting time to be an undergrad. You bring up a good point too with UTSA really being considered that commuter school for such a long time. And I really feel like the time frame of which you were at UTSA was really that pivotal point in the university's life where it jumped on the rocket ship started taking off completely and i think that what i know about utsa now and what i've written about as a researcher and as a scholar is there were these really important shifts in the institutions in south texas along the u.s mexico border so from utep all the way down to what is now utrgv but was ut brownsville and texas a&m international and things like that they were getting a lot of money from the state as a sort of project to try to bring some sort of equity to these institutions that hadn't been getting the same amount of funding. And so I think there were seeds in the 90s that were planted that were really starting to come to fruition. The energy that President Romo had brought to the university when he started there in 99 and just things like that. It was such a cool time to be part of UTSA. Your research that you're doing right now, we'll get into that here in a minute, is pretty fascinating because you coming in from El Paso, 18-year-old Aaron, coming over to UTSA, within your own research, I mean, you have this personal connection. I feel like as a researcher on that topic, you must have been pulling on personal experience on piecing all of that together. My original mentor before I went into education was an associate professor in the history department who's no longer at UTSA, but was there for a long time. Her name is Colleen Guy. The things that we used to talk about is research is me-search and that ultimately, whether or not you realize that at the time, there are personal connections that you have to your work, to your scholarship. And so it is interesting to be able to sit there and to think about the connections in the ways that my trajectory was part of this really fascinating time with the institution. The choices that I made that maybe felt like an act of rebellion, but were actually quite typical when you read about it. It's all stuff I didn't know when I was 18 years old. So you finished your undergrad in 2006. What was it that drove you to the history major? Honestly, I had really, really good history professors, and it was a subject that I just loved. I come from a family of public educators. Both my parents were principals in El Paso. My mom was a public elementary school teacher. My dad was a career-long administrator. I knew I didn't want to go into K-12 education. Like I knew that that wasn't part of my journey, but history, you can get a lot of skills in being a strong writer, being a really strong analytical and critical thinker. And quite honestly, those were the classes that I just really enjoyed, even in high school. You know, I remember going to orientation where they ask you if you want to declare a major and I just sort of put history down and it wasn't necessarily a super conscious, well thought out choice. It was just what I put down at the time, but I never actually changed my major. Wow. Obviously it stuck because it wasn't enough the first time around. I went straight back in and got more history under my belt. 
there's so much obviously that can be learned through what has happened already. For us to be analytical on decisions and moving forward, we have to understand what has happened in the past. And I feel like what you have been working on in your research and what really a couple of our other guests have been working on, we're seeing the importance of this field of study. Mm -hmm. And you talk about not wanting to go into teaching K through 12. Was that really the catalyst of you saying, okay, well, if I don't want to do that, I'm going to have to go get my master's and potentially PhD or was it just by happenstance? How did all that work out? Probably not a super conscious decision. I remember when I was an orientation leader, there was a professor from English who used to come and he would give some of the presentations for the College of Liberal and Fine Arts. And I always used to end up in those sessions because I was a Colfa student as a history major. And his commonly used phrase that I heard many times over the course of the summer was the people who often end up staying in higher education are people who had a lot of fun in college the first time around. <laughs> And I think that that was really true. I mean, I remember a couple of years after I started working full time for the College of Education at UTSA, and this was probably like 2009, 2010. And my mom's best friend and I having this random conversation. And she talked about how she was really glad that I found a career. I mean, I was like probably 24 at the time. And I didn't really know that I had a career at that point. I had to be told I had a career. But I didn't realize you could make a career out of working for a college and a university. And that was really naive thing on my part. But you know, you just sort of fall into it. And to a certain extent, there was absolutely motivation of wanting to be as cool and as smart and as awesome as my female mentors in the history department were. Mm -hmm. I had these really wonderful examples of just really amazing women in particular who were scholars. And I think of Kirsten Gardner, I think of Anne Hargrove, I think of Catherine Nolan Farrell, who are all still in the history department and amazing women and continue to be important mentors to me. I remember having conversations with folks of, if you want to go get a history PhD, which was what I intended to do, I was going to have to leave UTSA because right. even today, UTSA doesn't have a PhD program in history. But even more to the point, it's quite uncommon for people who aspire to be in faculty positions to get all of their degrees at the same institution, which mm. is exactly what I did. But I at least <laughs> changed fields for the third one. <laughs> right, right. You talked about being an orientation leader. And we've actually had a few guests that during their time at UTSA actually did the same thing. And they said they had the most amazing time, met some amazing people, and it added to their college experience. Totally. And you also talk about working for the Tomas Rivera Center as a supplemental instruction leader. Is that correct? Yep, that was it. Was that just kind of in line with, well, you know, probably maybe going into teaching or was it just an opportunity that came up? I enjoyed working with my peers. I had the GPA to do that. I had the history background. I had the grades that you needed to be able to take those courses. I could go and it was a great way to help students. There was encouragement from some of the people that I knew on campus that I would be really good at it. It was a great leadership opportunity for me on campus. And I ended up doing that every semester until I graduated, except for the semester that I studied abroad. And I had a blast doing it. And that was a position similar to being an orientation leader where I met folks who are still friends of mine. Tell me how you got the nickname of Queen of the Ski Lodge at the (laughs) Tomas Rivera Center. Part of being an SI leader is you attend class. And then the best practice that we were told was schedule your SI sessions so that they're either right before or right after the class so that students are still in the zone, getting them to ask questions or to go over skills they just heard. And so one of the things that I would do is I would just schedule my sessions so that we would just walk directly down to the university center and in particular to the ski lodge. And what I enjoyed about that is we could just spread out and create a big circle or to take over a large swath of the ski lodge. And I'm pretty sure that the people who were trying to sleep hated me for (laughs) multiple years that I would do that. But I remember my supervisor at the time would call me that and would talk to other SI leaders about how cool it was that it was a standard place that students knew where to find us and that I just became a staple figure for it for at least like 
like a school year. Really kind of changing the study dynamic, I feel like, and making it a little bit more comfortable and probably a little bit more inviting for those students to get involved with, I'm sure. The Tomas Rivera Center, that used to be where the tutoring center was, where the academic coaches are, and then those were the offices for the SI leaders. It also just used to be a nice reminder to students of if you need extra help or if you need help in other subjects, all you have to do is just walk through those glass doors right there. Mm, That's awesome. You finished up your master's in history in 2008 and then just kind of found yourself in a career, it sounds like. Yeah. Because in 2008, you started as a student development specialist for the College of Education and Human Development at UTSA. Yep. There's quite a lot that goes into that. It sounds like you were doing a little bit of everything within that job title. So tell us how that opportunity came to be and really what your responsibilities were within that. The College of Education had this really great model for supporting master's and doctoral students. And the way that I understand the history of the position, it's one that has been adopted by other colleges, but it was the College of Ed that were kind of the pioneers. And there was one associate dean in particular who had retired by the time I started working there, but it was really his brainchild. And there was a team of us who were assigned to the different departments within the College of Education. So at the time, I was assigned to interdisciplinary learning and teaching. And it was supporting faculty. It was helping to keep faculty organized and their advising of master's and doctoral students. But it was also being that person who was there to answer the phone and to answer emails of prospective students. We did a lot of really intentional recruitment. So we used to go to job fairs throughout the city, the state, and the country. We would go to graduate school fairs all over San Antonio. So that is one of the big ways that I've been on the St. Mary's campus, the Trinity campus campus, et cetera, because we would recruit some of their graduates to come get master's and doctoral degrees. And a lot of it was just being the support person if people were new to UTSA or they just were unaware of who to go ask questions about whatever. What classes do I take? When can I graduate? How do I take my master's exams? All of these different moving parts. How do I apply for a doctoral program? How do I pick a doctoral program? Do I need to take the GRE? Like all of those different things. That is what I ended up doing for eight years. And I adore being a professor, but I loved that job so much. I worked with incredible colleagues who were on the SDS team, many of whom I am still very, very close friends with. I got to meet a lot of the faculty throughout the College of Education. I will never forget that I was walking to an event and David Thompson, who was chair of the Educational Leadership Department at the time, said, hey, by the way, we have this doctorate in education in case you're ever interested. And I think you would be great in it. And I remember at the time I was like, oh, oh, that's great, but I'm going to go get a PhD in history. And then I think it was about a year, 18 months later, where I finally was like, no, actually, I think I'm okay not doing a history degree. I still want to get a doctorate. And I've got Dr. Thompson's words ringing in my head that I should consider that program. And so he unofficially recruited me and I worked for the College of Education and I was a student in the College of Education. That's incredible too, because it looks like it was an environment that allowed you to really kind of explore what it is that you wanted to do next and allowed you a little bit of guidance if that's going to be your career working at universities, wrapping up your PhD, becoming a professor. I would imagine there had to have been some sort of relational correlation to your time at Alamo College. It's a Northeast Lakeview College as an adjunct professor. You started that in 2009. How did you work those in together? When I started teaching at Alamo Colleges, at Northeast Lakeview in particular, Northeast Lakeview was this brand new campus. It was interesting because I was technically teaching classes for St. Phillips and San Antonio College while Northeast Lakeview was working on getting its accreditation. And that was an interesting time because it was a brand new community college. And I knew that I was going to continue my day job at UTSA. My supervisors at UTSA were really supportive about me teaching night classes there because I saw it as preparation for a PhD. PhD in history. And I wanted the experience of teaching, of being the instructor of record. Because of the way HR policies play out, I couldn't teach at UTSA even if I wanted because I was already 100% employed through Mm. the College of Education. 
it was sort of a weird convergence of opportunity and luck. And I did that on and off from 2009 to about 2016. I taught for the equivalent of about five years at Alamo Colleges and absolutely loved it. Probably the most important thing that I took away from it is experience with community colleges, which I had never had before. I started at UTSA, Strayal High School. I didn't attend community college ever. And so it opened my eyes to the beauty and the magic of community colleges and of their students. And I think that I had people at UTSA who were telling me, even if you switch fields, you still have a master's degree in a field that will serve you well in doctoral studies and education. You can still draw on the strengths and the skill set that you developed as a history student. And oh, by the way, there's a lot of opportunities if you are interested in studying higher education, and in particular, if you're interested in studying community colleges. I had these fantastic mentors in educational leadership who were telling me I could still be me, I could still get a doctorate, I could still positively impact change for students and be an advocate and do all of these things. And it really made sense because it sort of tied everything together in a lot of ways. And it also didn't hurt that I was a full-time employee of UTSA, so I had access to tuition benefits, and that I was going to class in basically the same building that I worked in, which is the main building. So there was some days <laughs> where I may have spent 12 hours in the main building. But the incredible quality of scholars that UTSA has hired and that I've had the tremendous opportunities to learn with, to collaborate with. I was extremely well-trained, extremely well-supported while I did all of these different things. What has occurred recently between the Alamo Promise and the UTSA Bowl Promise, which is a tuition promise program that aims to make college more accessible and affordable to Alamo Promise students who transfer to UTSA and meet certain eligibility criteria, and the qualifying students will have their tuition and mandatory fees covered 100% for four fall and spring semesters within a two-year time period as long as the students maintain eligibility. So that's a new program that just rolled out. And it's really great to see the relationship between the two institutions blossoming in that fashion and ties into what your research has been. And around 2014, some recognition started to occur, such as your participation in the Division J Emerging Scholars Workshop for the American Educational Research Association. And then 2015, it became a graduate student fellow by the Texas Association of Chicanos in Higher Education. And then a couple of other things that occurred in 2015. So it looks like starting in 2014 is when things really started kind of taking off for you. Explain what that was like kind of stepping into PhD and then looking at these opportunities to really grow in your career. It is a PhD program now. What I did was an EDD program, which is a doctorate of, of education. So I just always want to say I don't have a PhD. I, no, it's okay. The program is a PhD program now. I think it shows the evolution of that program, which I think was originally intended to create administrators and to develop practitioners. And I think that I am part of a community of students who eventually wanted to go toward more intentional scholarship research and things like that. And so I think the program became a PhD program two or three years after I graduated. Oh, okay. But anyway, I started the program and I just really thought, okay, you know what? I am going to be a career-long administrator in the student development specialist role. I was getting promotions and I was taking on additional responsibilities and really felt like, hey, you know what? I can spend the rest of my career here at UTSA. I don't seem to be hitting a glass ceiling. And I'm young enough at this point that if I get a doctorate, I can just make sure that I have every opportunity available to me or the foreseeable future. And I really thought that I was going to spend the rest of my career at UTSA. And I was really, really happy with that decision. And it was a little bit of a steep learning curve for me the first year because I didn't come from education. And I was probably the only person that I can think of who didn't have a master's degree in education in my program. And so I remember not really having the same language that other folks did. But then I realized that my history degree had also prepared me in ways that my classmates weren't necessarily. There were broader theories or broader readings that I had done that I would bring to the table and I could talk about that my classmates didn't necessarily know about. So it was very complimentary in that regard. And 
by the time my second year rolled around, I realized, you know what, I thought that I didn't want to do research, but at the same time, I still really love reading. I love writing. I love asking questions and letting my curiosities sort of take me in these different directions. And I had started forming a close relationship with my advisor, who was Anne-Marie Nunez. And she was like, hey, let's start looking at conferences and places that you can start getting engaged and developing your ideas and things like that. Mm. I had additional mentorship from Gloria Crisp, who was part of that program at the same time. And they really guided me toward these various opportunities and tapping me into research projects or helping me as I was developing my own research projects, my dissertation and things like that. By about 2014, I think that I was really trying to be an active researcher scholar on my own and was given some really great development opportunities like the ones you mentioned, the Emerging Scholar program out of Division J of American Educational Research Association is really about preparing students to make the jump to faculty. The Texas Association of Chicanos in Higher Education is very much a community about supporting researchers and practitioners who work in colleges and universities across the state of Texas. And so I think by the time I graduated in 2015, I was able to go to a lot of conferences, both national and state. I was starting to get my ideas out there. And then it was time to make a decision about whether or not I wanted to try to go on the job market to become a faculty member at a university somewhere or whether or not I wanted to sort of stay put and see what happened. And the original plan was to try to stay in San Antonio or as close to San Antonio as I possibly can. The academic job market can be a really rough place where you may get 100 equally qualified people applying for one job at one university and Mm -hmm. not exaggerating, it could very well be a hundred or over a hundred people applying for the same job. And I was on the job market for multiple years and I was fine dealing with that rejection and not getting any nibbles because I was employed. I was in a job that I loved with the College of Education. And then May 2016, I got a call from a friend who had said, Iowa State University has had a couple of unexpected departures, retirements, and things like that. We're looking for a visiting assistant professor. Is this something that you would be interested in? So I had an interview with them, and everything moved really, really quickly. Funny how that works out. (laughs) It was so weird how it worked out, because I think I had my Zoom interview with them right before Memorial Day, and I started with them in August. And I actually moved to Iowa sight unseen. It just ended up being a really great opportunity. But I remember having my farewell lunches and dinners with my UTSA family and crying, knowing that I was leaving and knowing that I was saying goodbye to this institution that I never thought I was going to say goodbye to. Right. Yeah. That's a big move for really anybody. I do want to get your thoughts on deciding on what it is that you were going to focus on in regards to your research. A lot of the research being based around Mexican-American studies programs and higher levels of education. I also didn't want to skim over the fact that in 2015, you also became a graduate student fellow by the American Association of Hispanics in Higher Education. So that also kind of ties back into what your research is. You've had a couple of publications, the first one coming in 2015, Negotiating Access and Tier 1 Aspirations, the Historical Evolution of a Striving Hispanic Serving Institution for the Journal of Hispanic Higher Education. This one in particular, I really, really wanted to spend a little time time on because you evaluated the recent move towards the tier one by UTSA in light of its historical commitments to serve the largely Hispanic population of South Texas. And I really feel like it was a pivotal time for that research to occur, considering the shift that we've done from a marketing perspective as a university to being a primarily Hispanic serving institution. I had not actually heard the term Hispanic serving institution until I took a class with Anne Marie Nunez. And this was probably spring 2012, I think was the first class I took with her. And she is now one of the foremost experts on HSI. She's a director of a center focused on HSIs at the University of Texas at El Paso. But she was working through a lot of her ideas and sort of formulating what it was that she wanted to say about HSIs. And I don't know that 
students often see this, at least undergraduate students, but a lot of times the way that people teach or the ways that they talk about ideas and stuff like that, they may be trying to figure out things for themselves and what they're going to ultimately say in their research. And I think that we had the benefit of being able to see the ideas that Anne-Marie was generating and that framed the conversations and the readings. And I was at UTSA both as a person who was trying to recruit doctoral students, which doctoral education is something that was prioritized under the tier one rhetoric that was coming down from the state. So it wasn't necessarily just a UTSA thing. It was a state mandate. And I was a doctoral student plus recruiting for doctoral programs at the height of that. I certainly remember when the marketing changed to tier one. And so I think that that article, it's funny that you bring up that article because it is about UTSA. It's 100% about UTSA is trying to make sense of what does it mean to be tier one, especially what does that mean for these campuses that were created to address inequities of access, particularly for marginalized communities, which in Texas, a lot of times means either poor communities, low socioeconomic status communities, but it also, especially in South Texas, means Mexican American families. And so what does that mean? And is there anything that an institution has to give up in order to do so? I think that it depends. I think that there's a lot of strategy and intentionality that has to go on to be able to balance this equity and access mindset versus this push toward tier one excellence and research and doctoral education. And I think that it takes a lot of awareness to be sure that you're not trying to bolster excellence by sacrificing access. That's an interesting thought too, because I did want to get your thoughts about that because really anybody that is not working within higher education, right, or working before a university, when we see tier one Hispanic serving institution, we're obviously proud of that, but we don't know exactly what that means. But at the same time too, you don't also want to be at the risk of pigeonholing yourself. Yeah. So how does a university navigate through that? The term tier one is a distinctly Texas invention. That is something that the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board and the Texas legislature seems to have cooked up about 15 years ago. And so if you say tier one outside of Texas, nobody knows what you're talking about. (laughs) Outside of Texas, you talk about research one institutions, or you might talk about the Carnegie classifications, which is the foundation that has tracked a lot of the metrics that put these various institutions into buckets. And I think that an interesting thing about tier one, and this is something that my very dear friend who was a doctoral student at UTSA, Alicia Reynolds and I are talking about and exploring right now, is the ways in which this definition of tier one has actually changed over time. In the last 20 years, it has meant different things to different universities at different points in time. What I have seen in the evolution of President Amy's definition of this and bringing this HSI identity together with this rhetoric of tier one, I do think that the point that he has tried to make is that UTSA wants to be a Latinx thriving institution. So it's not just students are enrolling. It's not that the institution is serving them, which servingness is a really interesting concept. And scholars like Gina Garcia have spent a whole lot of time trying to define what serving actually means. But I think this concept of thriving is meant to say that Latinx students particularly in South Texas, who are also more likely to be first-generation college students, they're more likely to come from low socioeconomic backgrounds and things like that, can come to UTSA and they can thrive. They can get a quality education that they need and that they want. They can choose their path for what it is that they want to do. And I think the original foundation of fields like ethnic studies and in particular Mexican-American studies, they can hopefully bring that knowledge and bring that experience of having been in college back to their communities. And they are the people who become the lawyers, the doctors, the teachers, the social workers, the law enforcement personnel, just everything. They bring that knowledge, that 
wealth, and I don't necessarily mean monetary wealth. I mean, they bring that capital back to the communities to uplift communities. That's really fascinating because President Amy, every time he speaks about what these designations mean and what the university is working towards, he tries to explain it in the best possible way so the layman can understand what, yeah. what it means. And all of us as alumni, we want to see everything that we can possibly get for the university that we love. And the Carnegie designation is obviously a big one. And President Amy, his experience at other universities was a pivotal role of those universities gaining that designation and coming to UTSA. And now some additional designations that we're working towards currently that are on the horizon that are really exciting. But it is really great to see that there was an alumni really at the helm of additional research that brought that in there. But in 2016, I do want to talk about a team effort that you had with Dr. Gloria Crisp and Nicole Reyes with your award of the Charles F. Elton Best Paper Award by the Association of Institutional Research and Predicting Successful Remediation Among Latino Students. Talk to me about your partnership within that effort and then what that paper actually was. Gloria Chris was a faculty member in the College of Education. Nicole Reyes, who I often call my academic BFF, she <laughs> and I did our doctorates together at UTSA. We were in the same cohort, which is cohort 14. So shout out to them. Nice. And Gloria had asked us to be part of her research team. She was studying Latino students who require developmental education, specifically in math. So these are students who come to college college and either by virtue of their high school education or maybe they take a placement test, they're identified as needing additional help in mathematics. So before they can take college algebra or whatever sort of equivalent course, they may need to take some sort of skills course to help build their skills in that area. And math in particular is known to be a huge gatekeeper course, meaning that it can really make or break a student's experience in college and whether or not they actually persist either from the fall semester to their second semester or into their second year, or if they get a bachelor's degree, quite honestly. It's a very high stakes moment in a student's life. And so Gloria received a grant from the Association for Institutional Research to look at a data set focused on this. And Nicole and I had the great privilege to be able to help her with this. And I think one of the things that we found was that being able to provide additional academic support, being able to provide financial aid was really important to students, especially the students who end up having the most need for developmental education. And that study has been really well cited in particular because it can be really hard to do research on particular racial ethnic groups within the confines of developmental education. And so I think that it was something that was really novel to be able to look at this one particular population and to be able to help define what their needs are at this really important and crucial transition point for students. And that ended up being a really cool thing that we got a best paper award for. They sent us a really fun little trophy that I have in my office that awesome. is a lot of fun. Yeah. That's a great topic of study, the mathematics course, and what that could mean towards somebody's future to finish their undergrad. Because in my own personal experience, I've talked about this on the podcast before, that I took some time off from school. I went to community college in Corpus Christi and then spent a significant amount of time away from university coming back much later. And my first course at UTSA was business calculus. Mm -hmm. And I had not taken a math course in over a decade. And I told my wife that I'm going to take this class first, and this will really kind of be the deciding factor of whether or not I can hack this thing. Yeah, 100%. And there are well-documented instances of students who just end up taking these courses over and over again, and they're not successful. And if you're taking the same course over multiple semesters, and it just doesn't feel like it's getting any better, you're spending money and you're not actually accruing any credit for right. these classes that you're attempting. It can be really demoralizing. It's also a high pressure situation because I remember that I qualified to take the class coming into school and I was told by my advisor at the time that if I am not successful at this, then I would have to jump back down and take remedial classes in yep. order to take the class again. So now I'm looking at easily an additional semester of time at university because of that. Completely. These do end up being extremely high stakes classes. 
classes for students. And so a lot of the work that was even what my dissertation was based on is how do we create practices for students who require these courses so that they can get what they need out of them as quickly and efficiently as possible? And how do we create spaces and teaching practices that help Latino students and their unique needs in particular? And talking about your dissertation, you're awarded the dissertation of the year by the Council of the Study of Community Colleges. So congratulations on that. So great success at the tail end of that thing. 100%. Yeah. (laughs) You did touch about your transition over to Iowa State University as a visiting assistant professor. Yep. But I think even more important in that transition, because I mean, you had a family built here at UTSA. You talked about the lunches and the dinners and things of that separation and going off into this next phase of your career. But I do want to talk a little bit about your experience with imposter syndrome. (laughs) It is a significant topic these days. And all the podcasts I listen to, a lot of them talk about managing imposter syndrome. And in your particular case, like you had said, the competition for these positions at universities is very high. How did you first recognize it? And then how did you navigate working through it and ultimately being self-sustainable? I remember when I first started going to national conferences, American Educational Research Association, Association for the Study of Higher Education, being in the room with some of these students from other incredible universities. I recall being in emerging scholars and being so intimidated that I felt like I was making myself smaller. I felt like I couldn't compete and that I didn't want to draw attention to myself because I didn't want to be found out and asked to leave because I wasn't actually supposed to be there. And being in academia, I think that you have to be ready to deal with a lot of rejection, not even just in getting the jobs, but in applying for grants and sending things out for publication in applying for special programs. There's just a lot of rejection that goes on. I, I remember talking to a friend of mine, every single manuscript that I sent out for publication in the year 2018 was rejected. My batting average was zero. Wow. (laughs) But good mentoring is really dependent upon helping you develop coping skills and developing enough of a thick skin to kind of roll with the punches. So it's not to say that those rejections don't hurt. And I remember a friend of mine asking me, how'd you deal with that in 2018? And I was like, well, you know, by like the fifth and sixth rejection, it's just (laughs) so absurd at that point that you have to laugh because... It becomes ridiculous at that point. And to quote the poet Aaliyah, you dust yourself off and try again. Um, (laughs) And that was kind of what I did. And I remember having these long conversations with Gloria Chris, for instance, who went to the University of Houston Clear Lake, who I think could feel a lot of the same sort of growing pains that I did of can I really compete with these folks? I have an EDD, which doesn't carry the same level of prestige as PhDs often do. UTSA is a wonderful institution, but it's not recognized on the same level as UCLA, Michigan, and stuff like that. I wasn't necessarily trained for academia in the ways that some of my colleagues who went to other institutions. And so how do I claim space and claim my own voice and claim the contribution that I have to make? And it took me a really, really long time to get there. And I think it took a lot of validation from people who I love and respect telling me that I am on the right path, that following my instincts and doing what I know to do is the right thing and is the best thing for me. And on any given day, have I completely slayed the dragon that is imposter syndrome? Like, no. There are times where I sit there and say, oh, I don't know if I can do this. But I also remember one of my dear friends, Rosie, always reminding me not to stand in my own sunshine. I feel like everybody, regardless of the industry that they work in, coming out of university or even with every promotion that somebody gets, there's a level of imposter syndrome that you're having to deal with. And that advice is very, very strong. And the fact that, you know, you really got to just keep going with it, right? If you're passionate about it and you want to make a difference, that's the best thing you can possibly do. But before we wrap up the interview, some quick questions that we ask our guests. Yes. First one being, how did your time at UTSA prepare you or add value to your career path? One of the things that I appreciate is that I basically came up 
through an institution that has this beautiful history and this beautiful connection to the community. The university that I'm at is a land-grant institution, which is supposed to be very tied to the betterment of communities, and it is. UTSA is not a land-grant institution, but it still has that community engagement piece and that community history that is not perfect. But UTSA has in many ways been involved with national and state and coalitional actions for the improvement and the betterment of Latinx-focused education and higher education at that. So I'm very proud to be a product of UTSA. That's amazing. And as an alumni, what do you see UTSA representing other than just a university? It is Puro San Antonio. And I love how in the last few years, the football team, for instance, puts 210 on the merchandise. And that really emphasizes the community, I think is super cool. And you don't see UT Austin putting 512 on their football nope. helmets. <laughs> Although we have seen some other Conference USA teams try to attempt what we're doing. But I got to say, for them to reach the national stage the way that they have, it's an important asset to the university and to the community as a whole, for sure. Fun fact, I will say, I know that San Antonio has another area code now, and that happened after I left, but I still have a 210 cell phone number that I refuse to give up. Nice, (laughs) nice. And Jacob, you touched a little bit on this next question before we hit record as to what Aaron's favorite memory of her time at UTSA was. So my all-time favorite Aaron story is how she actually met her husband. I don't know (laughs) if you mind sharing that with everybody because it is fantastic. I don't mind. And I think for anybody who's listening, everybody should know that Jacob and I met day one of freshman year in 2002 and have been friends ever (laughs) since. But May 2006, when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I sat next to the man who would become my husband. At the time, we just were talking, chatting, and I just had a feeling of, I really like this guy. This guy is really cool to talk to. And it was so interesting how we walked out of the convocation center. This was when graduation ceremonies were still at the convo. It was a really awkward, oh, okay, well, nice talking to you. (laughs) Take care. Goodbye. It was so awkward. And then fast forward to August, I sit down in a chair in my first graduate class And lo and behold, about three minutes after I sat down, I realized that I sat next to the guy from graduation three months earlier. And (laughs) we started dating. He and I did our master's degrees together. We got married in 2010. He remembers that we took classes together while we were undergrads before we graduated that I don't remember, but he has very specific memories of. So I know they happened. Yeah, you know, it's pretty funny that people don't believe that I just sat next to this random stranger who eventually became my husband. The sweetest thing was when we got married, I put out graduation pictures that show us standing next to each other and smiling for our families separately, which is kind of (laughs) funny for people who who don't actually believe this story. But my maid of honor actually gave this really beautiful speech at our wedding where I hadn't thought about it. So my husband's last name is Dijon and starts D-E and mine is Doran starts D-O. So she gave a toast to the alphabet and how lucky it was for us that we were close enough to each other that we got to sit next to each other. But I think it's also worth remembering how many people didn't show up for us to be able to sit together. (laughs) Within the letter D, we aren't that close to each other. So at least like someone named Dominguez didn't show up or else I probably would have been able to sit next to Kevin. So it is a true UTSA love story. And I think if Judd Apatow is looking for his next project, this has (laughs) got to be it. The only thing that I would just insist on is that if Judd Apatow is going to make that movie, he still has to include the mariachis at the commencement ceremony. (laughs) Yes, yes. Hands down. It's a must. (laughs) 100%. Well, awesome, Aaron. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much you've done for the university. And we wish you nothing but the best moving forward. Thank you. And go runners. Birds up. Birds up. Beep, beep. So there you have our Runner Nation, the interview with Dr. Aaron Doran, a three-time alumni from the UTSA and currently a published 
associate professor at Iowa State University. The research that she did during her time of, of completing her, her doctorate at UTSA really added a lot of data and information for the university to really focus in on as they were moving more towards the tier one Carnegie designation and the Hispanic serving institution at UTSA, but also with the community colleges and the connections that we are now making with the Alamo colleges as well. Again, we got to make some more connections with um, some past guests that we have because there is obviously a really tight correlation between the three of them. That's really what this Roadrunner Network's all about, is trying to make this connection with alumni that are out there that are really focused on the same thing and may or may not know that each other exists. So Aaron, thank you so much for the time. It was really, really great. Congratulations on everything that you've accomplished so far. And maybe this could be a little bit enticing to where we can maybe get you to come back to UTSA at some point, because I know it's really cold in Iowa right now. I think <laughs> when we had the conversation, she was dealing with like 12 inches of snow or something oh outside the house. So, no, thank you. But Yvonne, what else is happening at the University Alumni Association? A couple of quick announcements for upcoming events. We have a new exhibit that's going to be featuring artwork from the UTSA Art Collection, and it's going to be on display at the UTSA's Institute of Texan Cultures. It's going to run from March 30th through January 29th of 2024. So March 30th of this year to January 29th, 2024, and it includes works from 12 artists, and they'll be comprised of paintings, photography, prints, and tapestries. So if you have a chance to go by Institute of Texan Cultures over the the next six months, go check out the art exhibit. It's highlighting UTSA's art collection. So the next uh, event to announce is in partnership with Metro Health, the College for Health, Community, and Policy, also known as HCAP is hosting a lecture series discussing the life and body and work of Dr. Fernando Guerra, who was a longtime director of the Metropolitan Health District. This is going to take place on April 5th from 12 to 1 at the downtown campus in the Buena Vista Theater. It's going to be moderated by Dr. Vasan Ramachandran, who's the founding dean of the University of Texas School of Public Health at San Antonio. And it's going to include panel members Henry Cisneros, former United States Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Teresa De La Haya, who is a former Senior Vice President of Community Health and Clinical Preventative Programs with University Health, and Reverend David Garcia, who is a retired priest of the Archdiocese of San Antonio. So go check that out. It's during lunchtime, so you can pop over, listen in, and hear from these amazing panelists. Really awesome. And there, there's some further developments in the uh, alumni councils. In the last episode, I had mentioned that the Alvarez College of Business, Classy College of Engineering and Integrated Design, and the Construction Science and Management alumni councils are joining together for a new grad mixer on May 16th from 5.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. The location has been determined to be at the dooryard and thank you to our first alumni based sponsorship at Shriver Carmona and company. So Derek uh, and Chris from yay! the last episode, thank you guys thank so you much guys. for your sponsorship. It is really awesome. But if you or your company is interested in becoming sponsors for events that are happening with the alumni association, make sure that you reach out to the alumni association to get that rolling. We'll absolutely get you plugged in. Well, you can add Addison prime to that list. Oh, I'll Addison prime's on there. There we go. Yeah, there we go. So that's number two. Now, Jacob, Jacob Holden now needs to get his lined up. (laughs) The other event I want to bring up, I brought this up on the last episode as well, is podcast guest Amy Lynn Johnson from the Dog Guide San Antonio. In her episode, she talked about the fundraiser that they do to raise 100,000 pounds of pet food for groups that are in need for that food. It is called Kibble for Canines. And from April 15th through the 29th, you can donate online at thedogguidesa.com or at partner locations uh, such as Daisy Cares, The Waggery in Southtown, The Good Kind Restaurant and Bar, McIntyre Southtown, Geekdom, Lucy's Doggy Daycare and Spa, and Hops and Hounds. So as alumni, we got to help other alumni that are out there doing some amazing things. Again, they're looking to raise 100,000 pounds of pet food for the uh, local community. And lastly, the UTSA Football Fiesta Spring Game is coming up on April 14th at the Alamo Dome. Kickoff is at 6.30 p.m. Unfortunately, there's not going to be any tailgating allowed at at this game. Boo. But th- there's other places around the area that we can all meet up and go have yeah. a good time before yeah, kickoff. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So April 14th, 6.30 kickoff. It's a tie-in to Fiesta, which is always fantastic as well. Really cool that it is downtown. Don't forget, also, April 4th is Giving Day. So make sure that you guys... Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, make sure that you uh, follow all the social medias. 
Try to become an ambassador. Get I signed your, up. I get, signed up to be an ambassador. Get your companies involved. Let's raise and, and beat all the records that we broke last year and get after it. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for downloading. If there's anything that you can do to help us, make sure that you subscribe and or leave that five-star rating review as it helps us more than you know. We have new episodes coming out every other Friday at 6 a.m. And we'll catch you on the next one. Birds up. Birds up. Thank you.